0: Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Welcome to this. uh, Okay. Oh, welcome Welcome to the Building Science to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Okay. Hello and welcome back. Welcome back, everyone. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm here as always with my sidekick and friend, Miguel. Say hello, Miguel. Yes, thank you so much, thank you so much. Okay, so welcome back. Today we're gonna be talking about indoor air quality. I'm sure it's on a lot of folks' minds. But today we're gonna talk about it from a uh, where the rubber meets the road perspective. Actual real-time measurements of occupied spaces. This is not always what we're here. We're all, many of us I'm sure, are drinking from the fire hose of lab data and things like that, but what about real data? So tying this into building science, right? This is the Building Science Podcast. And in a very fortuitous set of coincidences or factors, building science is moving toward kind of away from durability and energy as a focus and into many other focus areas. Human health is one of them. Um, and that's really well, well appreciated by many people, including us uh, and our guests today. So at least here in North America for the last oh, I don't know, 70 years since the post-war building boom began, maybe the last century or so, we here in North America have chronically underinvested in our infrastructure, in homes, buildings, and infrastructure broadly that serves them. Um, and unfortunately, uh, nowhere is this more true than in mechanical systems. Um, unfortunately, mechanical systems... Uh, don 't photograph well, so they don 't make it on the brochures. Um, indoor air quality and thermal comfort are both invisible again they don 't photograph well so i 'm sure this has something to do with the lack of investment but really to be fair what 's happening is developers have managed to turn our kind of our built world into a profit making operation with with little regard for dimensions of quality you can 't see but to be fair they 've been able to do that because of uh, our public, as a as a, broadly speaking, the public is ignorant, not in the pejorative sense, but in the not aware sense of the many dimensions that indoor environments impact them, and because of that lack of accurate understanding, they do focus on visual, um, spatial, kind of like a status symbol uh, approach to their buildings, and of course, financial. But, the good news is that there is a way to break out of this downward spiral, this commoditization of indoor space. And many of us believe that it is through data and specifically through real time data. Like what is the environment you're in right now? What is the quality of it? If we start to give that data in real time to office workers and homeowners, um, I'm pretty confident that they're gonna re-evaluate their priorities and say, oh, that 40 pounds of air i breathe today is as important to me or more than what my countertop is made out of or something like that the countertop's the classic one okay so real time iaq monitoring is the topic of the show today and specifically it's leading toward an aerosol or an airborne infection risk assessment during the time of covid so how cool is that so we're going to start out with the big picture about the reset suite of standards They actually go into water quality, um, energy efficiency, and I'm super excited to see that they're getting into kind of the upstream and downstream impacts of buildings, which are these flows of resources. So they're looking at materials, circularity, waste, really exciting. So this is an ambitious effort led by a talented, motivated group of leading thinkers, and I'm super proud and excited to introduce and Jeanette Green to you today. She is one of them. So, Anne Jeanette, welcome.
1: Hi. Thanks. Uh, excited to be here, and that's a, quite an introduction. Um, I'll try to live <laughs> up to such a such a, a well positioned um, uh, entry, especially for those who, who might not be familiar with the reset standard. I think that you you sort of ticked all the boxes um, for me. Real quick introduction of myself and my background, because I, I do think that it's worth um, you know letting people know that I've been thick in the, the trenches of green building certifications for the better part of my career. And I, I take what we do at Reset really, really seriously. And I'd like to think that we're unique and different in not only the makeup of our team, and the uh, international breadth and scope that we bring to what we are very proudly calling an inter- international standard, but also that you know this this pandemic right now is is you know to our team sort of nothing nothing really new, and I and I say that not to belittle the importance of of the the, the you know situation that we're in currently, but my team and the creators of this Standard have, have been dealing with air quality issues and VOCs from materials and evaluation and credibility of, of how do you take data from the building sector and translate that in meaningful ways. We've been doing this for such a long time now that, you know, for, for the, the specialists on my team, we, we really are proud of the fact that You know, this pandemic is is similar to air quality issues and pandemics, quote unquote, air Mm -hmm. apocalyptic levels of pollution that we've been, you know, we've been really in the trenches of it for the last seven years. So we are an international team of scrappy enthusiasts um, who love what we do. And my background is actually in material uh, analysis and chemical reformulation. And it's, it's no surprise then that our interest lies very heavily in the cross-section of materials and how chemical uh, influences from materials um, play a really big role in our indoor air quality. But also, of course, this this very versed conversation that we have about air pollutants that are coming from the outdoor situation and leaking in to our built environments. So RESET is the product of a lot of innovation and a lot of uh, time and energy spent and it hits a lot of these targets. How do you hit um, energy goals? While right. maintaining good air quality, how do you evaluate materials and come up with good air quality? So my background and expertise is I'm a, a you know an auditor and an enthusiast and, and AP and all of these other certification programs, which is why we harmonize so well with them, and hopefully why we are able to do what we do with the resets. Awesome,
0: great introduction, and you know you only have to say something profound every other sentence. <laughs> okay. not every sentence. Just want to do a quick announcement, you guys. Um, Anjanette is in a public place in Oaxaca, Mexico. So if you hear some background noise, just enjoy it. Just think of uh, Oaxaca. It's a beautiful place to be. So if, if you could, could you give us a brief overview? Um, I'm, I'm interested in how did Reset get started? And then did, were you at, there at the very beginning? If not, how did you get started?
1: That's such a great question. And it's so it's not often that we get the chance to explain that. It's only been recently that... Um, we started to really be able to talk about our history. Um, The the company started out of Shanghai. Our CEO is actually Canadian and moved to Shanghai. He's been there for almost 20 years now. And as an architect, um, the the team was, was in Shanghai and one of the things that was new was this idea of sustainable and green architecture. Nobody really knew how to do that over there. And certainly, certifications and lead were they were known, but they were just not adopted. Um, they had no traction over there whatsoever. And in in an environment where contractors were switching out materials as just a matter of course, it was increasingly frustrating for architects to try to specify and then see installed materials and things that they wanted. And with the pollution that was so ubiquitous to the cities. And we're not just talking about Shanghai, I mean Beijing, and all of those developing cities. Um, Just construction on huge scales. You can imagine these expats and concerned, um, you know, new to the market families bringing, you know, CEOs from, you know, Fortune 500 companies were now living in situations where they had zero control. over what was going into their spaces. So they came to, uh, at the time, a company called GigaBase, which is the parent company of of Reset. They came to us, right, um, now called Giga. But GigaBase at the time was a functioning library of materials that were recommended because of their low VOC or zero VOC and off-gassing potential and because of their benign chemical ingredient composition. And so we created this library that was namely for the response of this ask, You know, how do I install great materials, what do I use? We developed that library and with it came this idea that if the contractor was to switch any of those materials that we specified, the air quality test would fail. So what we did is we used Hmm. monitors as a means to see if they were passing that sort of litmus test, if you will. Now, from that, they would either be paid or not paid, or there would be a negotiation if the VOC test was failing. But we were doing it with the monitors that we had at the time, some of which were great, some of them not so great. And so from that, it begged the question how do we then have more reliable devices to prove right. what it is that we want to prove, which is are you using the materials that we specify to create a benign and hopefully interior uh, that's healthy? for the occupants. Mm -hmm. So this is why I think it's so exciting for us to now, we have matured the standard for Reset Air by leaps and bounds. Not only because what we were asking for made sense, but the market responded by having more reliable, uh, hard wired devices, if you will. So the hardware that we're using improved, technology Mm -hmm. improved, sensors improved as a response to this, but also we have more materials that are interested with the, you know, the, the proven benefit of this being part of your air quality measurement system. And mm-hmm. so for me, I always find it interesting that Reset is most well known for its air quality module. But right. to me, air and materials have always gone hand in hand. You cannot separate the two. Absolutely. And further to that conversation, you really shouldn't be separating your energy use and energy efficiency and water. It's really a holistic package, but it has to be dealt with in in incremental ways. So that's a bit of a long answer, but really um, the inception of Reset Air came from the concern of materials. So I actually joined the Reset um, team, it was before it was called Reset. I joined the team in Uh, When I moved to Shanghai, I lived in Shanghai for about four years and was in the trenches with the team developing the Gigabase Standard, which is a multi-attribute standard that looked at water usage and energy and all of those multi-parameters that need to be considered. Um, And then dove into air because during 2014, I don't know how many people visited China at the time, but we were in air apocalyptic levels of air quality. It was the worst that the world had ever seen and because of the urgency of that we focused on air quality and how to monitor that so yes I, I very much am familiar i know exactly what it's like to wear a mask wearing a mask for me um i as a matter of course carry three n95 masks in my suitcase at all times um i have been monitoring my own air quality um, for years and i've informed and given lectures on this um, for a long time prior to this pandemic. So again, I don't want to belittle the importance of this pandemic, but what I would really encourage people to understand is that A, if you had monitoring in place prior to the pandemic, you would be in a much better position to understand what you need to do for remediation. And secondly, don't hang your hat on the fact that it's only this pandemic. Because what happens is we try to fix one problem forgetting about future problems. If we had had that same logic in 2013, when we were faced with outdoor air pollution, we would not have been prepared for an indoor air quality pollution or pandemic such as what we see. And this mm-hmm. this will bleed into hopefully what we talk about further on the call, which is, you know, people who have wildfire pollutant issues. Yeah. Um, people, there's global warming issues. There's, there's a host of issues that we all need to sort of leverage ourselves. Um, and hedge against not just this pandemic. And I, I don't wanna lose sight of the importance of preparedness.
0: Yeah, I will definitely, I'll definitely bring you back to that. And l- let's just stay with hardware. And I have a quick inter- interjection, which is that when I talked about how we've been underinvesting in our infrastructure, there's a reality that even if you are measuring, oh my gosh, I need to increase ventilation air, well, you need the hardware to add ventilation air. If you need to dry the air, you need a dehumidifier, right? If you need better particulate capture, you need good tight ducting and low uh, bypass filters. So the fact that we've underinvested means that frankly, we don't have the quality, the capability, the versatility that we need frankly to respond to s- signals from sensors.
1: I mean, it's such a hot button issue right now, especially when we're talking to a lot of schools in the U.S. We just did a presentation with the USGBC in partnership with the, you know, school um, district, if you will, on the West Coast, who are trying to understand how do we deal mm. with COVID and wildfires at the same time. And yes. the, and the, the response to that is really, you know, it's hard for us. It's heartbreaking, actually, it because a, when when you start asking even the most fundamental questions is like, okay, well, what kind of ventilation system do you have? And they can't answer you. <laughs> or, you know, what is it, do you have 100% outdoor air? Like, do you have is somebody looking at your louvers? Do you even know what a louver is? I mean, it's it's a little bit embarrassing. And, and quite frankly, again, if you don't have somebody who is in your operations and maintenance, if you don't have an O&M team, that can actually come to the front during these types of scenarios and answer these basic questions, you're already so far behind the gun that if my team or any of our specialists come to you and say, all right, we need to install some kind of uh, carbon scrubbers, and we need to do it in this, but we need to know what your air exchange rate is, and then they come to you and say, oh, well, we haven't actually upgraded an HVAC system since 1965. Right. Ah, oh, you're starting at such a late. Like, how how do you address a pandemic when you know the school season's already begun? You're so far behind. And yeah. so, to that, I think that you know, if nothing else, our the reset standard I, I hope will will cause people to start asking the right questions to then get themselves to understand. Okay, where do we even begin? And what is the correct, nuanced response for our particular scenario that's regionalized and can be weighted
0: properly. I don't know how we're going to keep this to an hour, Ann Jeanette. Um, there's so many directions. I just want to touch on something. So we're also doing some consulting with schools here. And the the heartbreak, the poignancy, these administrators, they're overwhelmed. They care. They want to do all they can. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, and thank we, you for doing that.
1: And, yeah, and, you know, to that, I just have to say one thing. Whether you're a teacher or whether you're a concerned parent, I really want to make sure that these are not the people who are... These are not the people who need to be responsible for monitoring a classroom. A right. teacher is not a technical and expert, a nor should they should be. And they need to be busy. They don't... They need to be busy teaching, not trying to plug in and move around a, a mobile folder. Right? Yeah. So I think that... Um, we have always, in our presentations, sort of tried to champion the owners and you know, operators, the maintenance folks. Um, our, our CEO lovingly calls him Krusty the engineer.
0: <laughs>
1: and they are now the superheroes. And I think we really need to flip the, the switch um, and ensure that those are the folks that right now, those are our essential workers, right? I don't think that they've received the acknowledgement or the empowerment that they need in order to do what is necessary to be done
0: Yeah, well said Okay, let's, let's go back a time ton- Yeah, I agree completely they, they are the superheroes, facility managers um, So you mentioned the sensors, right? And so of course I think oh, we have a you know, mass spectrometer in there and we're just evaluating the different chemical species but that's not really what you had Or well, Here's a challenge for you, Anjanette can you characterize fairly succinctly the what you've seen is the broad arc of sensor development and, and what are you using today?
1: Right. I think that there's, again, there's a heavy lift when it comes to educating people about what we mean by continuous monitoring. Continuous monitoring is a very different type of approach for air quality or energy monitoring or any other type of monitoring when you're actually looking at data quality from an historical and ongoing perspective. And I wanna make sure that people understand, if you are dealing with something as egregious as a um, viral infection or particulates of some, some nature that you need to speciate, you need to ensure that you understand the difference between these types of monitoring approaches and you probably will need to overlap them, right? So continuous monitoring is exactly as it says, continuous monitoring. Devices that are meant for spot checking, like you're saying, maybe uh, uh, somebody comes in to do a spot test. It's a canister test that actually is taking a sample of air and it's taking it back to a lab. And it's able to do mass spectrometry and, and look at all of that uh, as far as speciation is concerned. Um, gravimetric is yet another type of technology and that is used for you know particulate. These are all technologies that that range in their speciation and their sensitivity. Continuous monitoring. I tell people the difference is, is imagine you have a phone. The device is the monitor and the the chip inside it that makes it do its computer functionality, that's the sensor. Now, sensors across the world come from a, a global stock. There are only a handful of precise and reputable sensor manufacturers in the world the monitor manufacturers take those sensors and how they put them into the device is how you get different performance and how you get different costs. So some people spend a lot of time and effort on their R&D, sexy, beautiful interface, blah, 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 but the sensor, the technology inside is pretty much the same and if it's failing it's failing because they use a very inferior sensor and we would not accredit those so continuous monitoring serves a valuable purpose in that it looks at your historical data and it sort of not ignores but it doesn't raise the alarm on anomalies what it's looking for is do you have trending over time that says you have a continuous voc problem like you have a very high chemical content in your space that signals that you have a systemic problem that requires further investigation. Then you come in with a device that's far more specific and you speciate. Is it benzene or is it just some kind of off-gassing that's coming because you're, you know, having happy hour every Friday and you're getting some kind of effluent mm-hmm. from whiskey. Or Axe
0: body spray. Or right, is.
1: things that you should or should not necessarily be concerned with. So, Think of continuous monitoring as a tool in a toolkit that's going to tell you specifics over a course of time that is ongoing performance based rather than some kind of specific spot in time. Um, The difference between a high uh, resolution camera can take a very Great picture, but it's only one moment in time that you capture it, versus a closed caption, um, a closed circuit video camera, which would actually take a video over the course of the life of the building.
0: That's a very good metaphor. Uh, um, so you accredit the sensors themselves.
1: The nice. monitors, yes. The monitors, yes. We have a standard for the monitors. And I guess to answer your question can you, a little bit can more you carefully... Can you define the difference between a sensor and a monitor? Yeah, yeah you originally asked the question about where have, where have we seen devices sort of evolve. So let me address right. that. So a sensor is, you know, there are sensors that detect uh, particulate. Mm-hmm. There are sensors um, that can only detect VOCs. These are these mm-hmm. are different technologies, right? And a monitor will deploy those different sensors, and we will test those individually based on criteria that proves to us that the monitors can be perf- uh, comparable. So the requirement for the reset standard is not necessarily can you hit accurate numbers against a reference monitor device, because uh, that is an extremely difficult criteria to do, but rather are you within range and do your devices perform unilaterally? Are they comparable? So if I buy one device and deploy it in a building in the UK, I want to make sure if I buy that same device from you and deploy it in Singapore, they're going to act The same, and so that's what we're testing. We're testing consistency of trending over a batch of monitors, and testing is rigorous. It takes a minimum of one month, and believe me a lot of monitors fail it's not easy to do and what it shows us is if there is a need for calibration we can put that in the report so that the monitor manufacturer understands how far off they are trending from one another which would constitute failure or how far off they are from a reference monitor device and that gives them some idea of calibration now I have to use calibration very cautiously because in order to calibrate properly you have to do that in a region by region, space by space manner. You cannot unilaterally apply that because Mm. our testing lab in Shanghai is very different than if you were to deploy in downtown Chicago, let's say. So take that with uh, advisement. But what we've seen over time, when we initially started testing monitors, there was zero consistency. They were all over the map. You could not test one against the other and come up with anything of consequence. Whereas now we're seeing consistency to the degree that they're just getting better and better and better and our confidence level in their accuracy is getting better and better. Um, We're actually really excited in that we're getting really close to a grade A monitor standard which is kind of going to blow the doors off the industry because it will be the first time that vertical counting will come into the fore and I will bring that up only because of in this space of the pandemic particle counting is very unique in that it does not discern between liquid and dry particle but it actually lumps them both together so you can imagine this conversation of liquid aerosols and droplets how important it is for us to be able to detect those in a given air sample
0: yeah fascinating and Uh, So I'm personally interested in this. I'm trying to think about the interview in context of keeping us on track, but there's so much to cover. So I think we're okay. We can talk a little bit more about about monitors. Um, Are these uh, resolved? So uh, here's what I'm getting at, that the the ultrafine particles, the nanoparticles that we breathe in, if you measure by mass per volume, those are going to be extremely low, but if you measure by like how much surface area they bring into my lungs, their smaller particles are actually carrying more disease risk or more uh, health risk. Um, do, do you have a sensor like PM two point five is two and a half microns and smaller, but it's really down like around a hundred micron. Uh, excuse me, a hundred nanometers and smaller. Are there any sensors that you know of that are doing that? In the,
1: yeah, so, I mean, again, when we talk about the... When the you grade, mentioned counters, yeah. Yeah, so, so counters, again, that's a different technology, and, right. and, oh, that opens a whole other can of worms and I'm not <laughs> sure what the listeners are ready for, but I'll say just really in a nutshell that because there have been different ways that we... The technologies can report different things in different units. You know? Right. Gravimetric is a different sort of than... Light scatter technology, and so when you—it's not apples to apples, but there's been a a, a conversion that we've been using. It's uh, it's it's imperfect, right? It's been a little fuzzy, but everybody sort of just accepted it. Correct. But when you introduce particle counters, there's a couple things that, that happens. One is that you yet again have a different sort of unit, if you will. It's not it's not grams. It's not ppm. It's something different. Number. Yeah. So we, so we as an industry. We've created a standard that classifies things like semiconductor rooms, what would qualify as a clean room under the context of particle count, but we haven't translated that in terms of human health. So while the resolution is better and far more, I think, robust and interesting part of particle counts, we don't have a way to translate that to effects and impacts and, and hazard risk range for humans. Mm-hmm. And so, I think, again, there's so much to unpack when it comes to the education piece. We have to explain to people what is the difference between these and then what does that mean in the context of my human health? Is, is you know, a reading that's PM 2.5 and below, which just clumps everything together um, a, a place to start and gives me an understanding? or is do i really need to actually dive into what what is what are the different channels underneath PM 2.5? And to your point, the nanoparticulate is showing to be far more dangerous because it passes through cell walls, it gets into your brain tissue, and all sorts of things, you know. And then to that, the viral particle. <laughs> there is no continuous monitor right now that can actually detect viral particles. You know, a naked right. virus particle. There's nothing that can do that.
0: Mm-hmm. They're going to quickly glom onto something. Anyway. Yeah.
1: But, mm-hmm. Right. And so again, you have to understand under what context. You know. So so then do you diminish the importance of a device that cannot detect something as small as a viral particle? In my opinion, absolutely not. You want to detect things that are small enough to give you a proxy, because proxy Mm -hmm. is meaningful. Um, We do that with CO2, we do that with all kinds of things. So I think that we really need to stop getting too far down the rabbit hole and, and sort of back up a little bit and understand what in the proper context is going to be helpful for us to make wise decisions.
0: Yeah, okay. So I think we've, we've covered monitors. I just want to pull back up out of the rabbit hole one of your last statements. You said, just wove it in there, about nanoparticles, or also known as ultrafine particles, um, making their way you know, across the air blood barrier uh, into our brains, into our blood, into our brains. That is, in fact, the emerging research, but I don't know that everyone knows that, and it, that's shocking. And that's Yeah, that's
1: yeah. I, there's a wide body of, of evidence that's been written by far smarter people than I, that talk yeah. about how particles now um, within that size and range um, really need to start becoming far more, you know, uh, part of our attention mm-hmm. than previous. You know, I, most standards now, they include PM10, but gosh, that's like so antiquated now when we think about it. Um, PM10, who cares about PM10? Right, exactly. Um, We're down to <laughs>
0: PM0.1, and actually it's even smaller. The particle yeah. counters that I know of, they usually end around a half a micron or something right. like that.
1: Right, so, right which is
0: point 0.5 it's, not point
1: 0.1 right it, 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 and it's incredible i think because when you start to be able to understand the channels it, it it starts to then point to the ability to understand what is contributing to the particulate so then you can actually do a little bit of diagnostics and figure out oh okay well particles that are typically that small come from this type of uh, pollution or come from this type of um, uh, fossil fuel burning or whatever. It could, so then in a way, if you have somebody who's an expert in understanding the diagnostics, you, you can, in a way, start to sort of speciate and understand, well, let's get to the source. Is mm-hmm, it combustion? Mm-hmm. Is it, you know, having just a, you know, an epic um, air quality day because industry is, is crazy. So that's where I think again, speaking to the experts in, in our audience, this is when I would really encourage people who are who have been in this realm for a while to realize that it's only gonna get better. It's only we're only gonna get smarter, but we really need the SMEs, you know, to be alongside this effort so that we can stop sort of trying to play these games of, you know, one device being better than than another. This is a group effort and it's a collaboration between these different measurement technologies to really get us across the
0: yeah, I think uh, I think we should move past sensors and monitors now. Although, boy, oh boy, we could we could come back. Maybe I, I bring you back. We'll talk a little bit more about them in a different show. But,
1: <laughs> yeah, I, I, I could talk a blue streak on any. As you, topics, know, as you know, exactly, it just
0: goes on and on and on. Yes. Yeah, it's, it's- Um, so let's talk about how these sensors are used, or excuse me, how these monitors are used. And first of all, we didn't clarify this, but I, I assume that you're using consumer-grade um, uh, sensors and monitors, not laboratory-grade. right?
1: Well, let's make a distinction because in the research standard, we 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 call our devices by grade A, B, and C. Uh, mm-hmm. A grade A would be like an FEM, an FRM. This is high, high technical, multi, you know, thousand-dollar pieces of equipment. A grade B is a commercial grade. So those are our accredited monitors that are graded and fit for purpose. So we've got outdoor induct and indoor monitors. Those are commercial grade, what you want to use to evaluate your building or commercial property. And then we have consumer grade, and that is grade That's
0: C. C. Yeah.
1: And grade C is not allowed on RISA projects. There's a place in the market for them, but not in research certi- reset certification. But are the, re- are the grade
0: C's moving up to be high uh, sufficient quality to be grade B? Such,
1: such a good question. I would actually, um, you know, my team, my team, you know, experts in my team who are in charge of the, the monitor testing protocols would, would maybe correct me, but I would say there's more of a movement from the grade B to grade A than there is from a grade C to a grade B, and I th- I think that's a fair statement.
0: Okay, and I, I actually <laughs> very I'm getting very serious about. I want to talk to you guys again about monitors. That that should be a whole episode. I, I wanted to get more to the kind of the rub, where the rubber meets the mo- road. What do we do about the data, and how can that transform society? And then I also talk about COVID a little. But just just touching very briefly, and we'll, maybe this is the last. Could you put a relative price range on those three grades A B C? I mean, so I could say grade C, let's say $300. That's what that's what they cost off on the order of. Our grade B 10x?
1: Such a good question. Okay, so there's two fact, well, there's three factors that play in here and and all of them are really important, especially for project teams who are looking to deploy and want to make a quote to their client. Number right. one is there is going to be a variance in price depending upon, as I said before, the R&D that went into the monitor itself. Some monitor manufacturers have spent a lot of time and energy in making sure the monitor looks good. It's an attractive, and that's important because these are going on the wall, right? Architects don't like stuff on their walls. And so the monitor needs to be something that can actually be blended in. And importantly, it need if it's going to have some kind of uh, display or face on it that's displaying numbers, it's really important that, that option can either be toggled on or off or covered up. Now you can imagine the, you know, the sort of adaptation that a lot of project owners have by putting a display on the wall that might every day, every day tell them they're in the red—you know—that's right. a better description. <laughs> so, so there's a there's a there's a hesitation that goes Absolutely. with that. So the price of the monitor is not only just like how, how sexy and, and great the interface is, how you know its cover looks, how it connects, how easily it adapts to Wi-Fi or to Ethernet. There's a whole host of things that need to be considered as to far as why that price point is where it is. Um, the, the most important that I think is worth noting is some of these have uh, a swap technology that allows you to take the sensor cartridge out and replace it when and if there's a new technology or when that sensor just ages out and needs to be awesome. uh, replaced. Now you can imagine, that's a very different price point than a device that, that doesn't have that. So there's a there's a, a get what you pay for piece. Um, and some of those you know very sort of nitty gritty devices still pass the accreditation requirements, um, but they don't have all those bells and whistles. And those can start at a price point, depending on your market, as low as 200 the highest point in 2000. So again, there's a big range based on how much has gone into the development of that device itself. Now the other part of that is how you determine fit for purpose. An outdoor monitor is a very different device than a monitor that you put indoors on the wall. We're talking about something that has uh, protection against snow and freezing, rain, um, insects coming into it. They have to have, this, this is a very different type of machinery and the sensitivity to that cost is going to be reflected in how they had to build that. Um, it has to be mounted on an outdoor you know, parapet. It's very different, right? Um, so, and then to speak to the third you know, piece is you've got induct devices as well. Um, This is a totally different technology where the pipe or a tube has to go into the ductwork and take a small sampling of air at very measured rates where the velocity of your HVAC system is not going to affect your data. So, you know, fit for purpose, um, the bells and whistles and, you know, again, where in your market you're purchasing them from because we do have things like uh, CE ratings and UL ratings and things like that. So depending on where your market is and what's available to you and shipping costs, that's that. those are the three things that are going to affect your price. But I, I'd like to make sure that people don't mistake that a, a cheap device anymore, the market has become extraordinarily competitive. So very, very good devices are are still at a fairly low price point. Price does not necessarily reflect whether the device is good or bad.
0: And if we did bring you back on, you could talk about specific devices. Um, That would be fantastic.
1: Sure, or anybody, and, and again, it's really important that people understand that Reset does not sell monitors oh, I understand that. and we mm-hmm. do not sell data platforms um we're third party and completely unbiased uh, in that regard.
0: is there a list on i obviously spent quite a bit of time looking at reset prior to this interview but i did not see like a list of accredited monitors is that there? there is awesome. yeah there is oh,
1: on the, awesome. the reset page there's always been a list of our accredited monitors as well as our data providers
0: okay so we have these monitors we have an indoor space we have people in it we're getting data how do we use that to um, both to communicate and to, to advocate for actions, right? And, and actually, frankly, control actions, right? Bring on more ventilation, bring on, you know, um, recirc filtration or something like that.
1: Yeah. these in the
0: system. Yes,
1: please. Yeah. This is again where you need to have at least somebody who has enough experience to, to know what, what the data means and, and to sort of be able to fold that into a comprehensive um, air, air quality management plan. Um, and again, this is why historical data can give you far more you know, um, you know, plans moving forward as our buildings change. As our knowledge changes, as we start to realize, oh, well maybe higher humidity is better for human health, and we need to adjust out of that 20, 30, 40 percent and dial up to, you know, the forty, fifty percent that, that people are saying was better. Now we're not the experts. We don't we are not the ones who establish those those numbers. We let the research do that. You know, medical people who are authoritative tell us what those thresholds are, but how you take that data is the way the RESET standard is designed is to be responsive to the nuance of your region and to how your building is occupied. How, it, you know, especially now when a lot of our spaces are not at full occupancy, right? the standard is nimble enough to understand and be adjusted for that. And it also has a unilateral deployment requirement such as that the monitors that you have installed to follow the reset standard, they have to be placed in such a way as to be a clear depiction of a percent of your occupants deployed within the breathing zone within a cross section of your space types. Now, again, every project is different. If you have a kindergarten and most of your occupants are below three feet, then you wanna make sure that you were deployed in such a manner as to be reflective of those occupants. Yeah. And and I use that as a very extreme sort of scenario, but you can understand, you know, when we wrote the standard, we were hyper-aware of, of how do we make this non-prescriptive, but rather data that is actually accurate on a case-by-case basis. It's not a checklist. Um, It does not tell you what kind of filters to use. It doesn't tell you what air exchange rates to have. It means that the data that you're gonna be aggregating is such that it's reflective of your building scenario, your typology, and how many people are in the space. And the beauty of how that data is packaged to the platform is you can can switch that if you need to. So, let's say your hours of occupancy have now drastically changed from a nine to six office to, I don't know, maybe you only have half days. Well, now you can change when you're actually looking at your numbers within that smaller range and you can actually look at what your occupancy numbers have done as far as things like CO2. So now you can start to overlap that with maybe best practices that have been given us by ASHRAE or Ishray or whoever, Riva or whoever else you're, you're looking to. To actually understand, okay, what do we need to do to actually up our game, to understand how do we get our ventilation up to par? How do we need to adjust our temperature, our humidity? And if we're doing things like bringing in outdoor air, are we also measuring the possibility mm-hmm. of outdoor pollutants coming up in 2.5? In tandem with the recommendations for CO2 and mixing and dilution and all of that. So, what this does is it's going to give you a far bigger picture and that data, because again it's third party audited, you know that it's not being gamified. And further, you can use that data however you want. If you want to plug that into something that helps you with your energy goals, you can do that. If you want to put this into a building automated system that helps you understand when to trigger your CO2 and and outdoor movers to go off and on, that's entirely up to you. So, if nothing else, I think from, you know, listening to this, I'd like people to take away from the fact that Reset is a standard first and a certification second use the standard in a way that you can apply this to do an apples-to-apples comparison within your own buildings within your own portfolio and also apply it to buildings across the globe that you may or may not want to have some sort of you know competitive edge against or comparative ability
0: so we have these sensors i'd like to get a sense of um like what types of buildings they're in. Um, It sounds like you mentioned offices and schools. I'd like to get a sense of the breadth of that. And then if you also could give us a sense of uh, where in the world are they?
1: Ah, Um, Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, we have...
0: Uh, and you have 30 seconds. Go. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all over the world in a variety of typologies. Okay, um, good. Done. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so the, the fun part of that is on the Reset website, we have a we have projects that if they have elected to make themselves public, um, anybody can go in and they can actually look at all kinds of metadata about the project. They can find out where in the world it is. You can actually do filters by city and country if you want to. Um, and you can search by typology, which is either CI so a commercial interiors project, or a CS, a commercial, or excuse me, a Corn shell project. Um, now, while CI and CS, you know, is a very broad sort of categorization of how you deploy the standard, because looking at two very different things, it's another show entirely. Um, yes. But as far That's as typologies, one. typologies, we, we have, you know, deployed the standard in uh, cathedrals that are... Hmm. Decades-old, old old stone Gothic cathedrals. Um, We have deployed in uh, sports complexes, huge pieces of real estate. Um, We have in commercial brand names that people would be very familiar with, from luxury brands to. Your everyday um, coffee, co- favorite coffee shop and coffee roastery. So there really is no typology that currently cannot be adapted to either looking at your indoor air quality measurements, basically behavioral influences, or Sort of diving into what the loans of the building are doing. So that's your corn shell. Now, Reset, you know, we've, we've started to look at how do we get more adaptable to things like uh, residential. So we have Reset for Residential that really stands for a single family type of freestanding house. Mm-hmm. So if you wanted to look at uh, air quality for your own residence, we've written a standard for that and what we're calling multi-dwelling. So this would be your hotels, your um, college campuses, places where you have multi-dwellings, but the ownership and the maintenance of it is quite different but you still have occupants that are in spaces that are that are acting twenty four seven, like a, a sleeping quarter and places like uh, elderly care facilities, where you need to have a very rigorous understanding of your air quality and what those numbers mean.
0: Yeah, so it's it's not for this show, but elderly care facilities, it's it kind of keeps me up at night. Like uh, people like you and I have expertise in, I feel like I should stop everything and start going door to door in my town, walking into these spaces and saying, what are you doing? Heartbreaking. Okay, so where I wanna go next is toward these, well, you know what, we, we actually should, to do Reset Justice, l- before we talk about uh, air quality optimization and then COVID, that's how we'll end, to talk to me a little bit about the water quality and then the materiality. You have the materials, it started with materials, but now you're adding this circularity.
1: Ah, oh, yeah, and I'm only gonna be able to touch on it. Well, uh, you know, water, I'm not going to be able to to, to say much about it because, again, you know, we're looking at water, again, under terms of data quality and continuous monitoring. And that, again, it's very different than water sampling. And so far, you know, when you're looking at continuous monitoring, that's very different. And what you can actually get as far as measurements from continuous data is very different than a water sample. so I think that, again, we have to educate people as to what the understanding is. Like, what are we measuring? We're trying to measure overall usage and monitoring how much. We're not, we're not monitoring a low flow uh, faucet, for example, but we're looking at how, where and how do you put sensors in and sub-metering in in such a way that you have ongoing Data performance. Um, are there requirements for you know uh, total suspended solids and things like that? Well yes, but don't confuse what our standard is asking as far as data quality from the importance of maybe a spot test. Again, it, it, it's relative to the module in the same way that air air sampling is is relative. You know, sampling a piece of air or part of air with a canister test and then taking it to the lab is very different than continuous monitoring. And, and water is exactly the same concept, you know. So I, I think that one thing, again, just to prepare people who are coming down the road, is understand the difference. A fundamental difference with the RESET standard is that it is a quality of data standard, and we're trying to understand where do we draw a line in the sand so that everybody is monitoring and using their baseline criteria the same way. Because If you're monitoring in a different fashion than I'm monitoring, then there's no comparability, and then nobody actually has any credibility. So the data quality standard part is really where water would would sort of shine, same with energy, the same with uh, materials to that effect.
0: Okay, so with, with water, it's as though one of the primary data that come out is um, consumption data, how much water is being consumed. And then because it's a data quality standard, is, is that another way of saying that you, you don't find sensors of sufficient quality to sample actually something like total dissolved solids?
1: Yeah, and it depends on, again, it depends on the pollutant. Some are really good at detecting some things and some are just not quite there yet. They just don't have the ability to do that.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I've been having some conversations recently about uh, municipal water quality and the kind of the, sur- the surprising and scary actions that uh, some of the public water systems are undergo where they'll dump like magnesium in them to get calcium out of the lines and then so suddenly magnesium is super high for a few weeks yeah and we don't know you know in in
1: places like china where there is a you know a standard that you that you do need to add a certain amount of chlorine to the water but there's no limit to how much yikes and so like you you should you just have water in many places that's you know very high in certain pollutants because there's there's a minimum but there's no maximum. Now I mean I, I should caution it that I haven't looked at the water quality standards for China for a long time, but when I was living there that was again one of the concerns. Mm-hmm. It's like you have these, you know, requirements, but how, how you measure something, you know, with this adage of the, you can't you can't mend or can't fix, you can't understand something you can't measure. It's just so appropriate
0: a uh, part of the conversation for us to be having right now, right? Yeah, it's really a I love more it. Mm-hmm. It is super, because yes, because pre-COVID, I mean, um, it's as though truth has been weaponized in our society, and so having a standard that says, look, we're going to create this confident floor of data quality, and then on that, we can build off of that base, it's so important.
1: And I I, I can't uh, you know overstate that enough. And I think that's one of the one of the complexities of our standard that most people kind of take for granted and, and also misunderstand. And it, it for us at Reset, you know, we have spent careers worth of trying to get people to understand there was no standard for data quality. There was no standard for how data came in. There was no standard if you look at John Hopkins, they're the ones who create this, the dashboard by which we look at viral. Even they, on a lot of their webinars, have talked about the lacks, you know, data quality, the lack of data quality standards. They have data that comes in that contributes to the numbers that we look at on maps of where COVID is coming from. But there's no standard for the data that comes in. They have to clean it, but they have to clean it on their own methodologies. So wow. if we don't even have data standards for something as important as you know the dashboard by which we are measuring COVID, why would anybody imagine that we have standards for something like a certification for air quality? We had no standard for monitors. We had no standard for how the data came in. We had no standard for requiring a data audit. None of that. And so I find it surprising that you know. The biggest part of this conversation that we have to have with people is that for us, the heaviest lift was to create a standard that we felt was reputable, and everything else is built upon that based on what the best practices say. You know, if you don't have a foundation of data quality, people are gonna poke holes in what it is you're delivering. And everybody is gonna be starting to you know, deliver their own you know, aggregate of data averaged on one hour, one data point for one hour is what we're giving. What does that even mean? You know, if there's no standard for that, the quality of that data, the quantity of that data, we're all, then we're, we're getting nowhere. We have, we have smart buildings that are acting dumb.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, I bet you are thinking, and I am thinking, I know I am thinking this, and a lot of our listeners too, Things like uh, active air purification systems. Every manufacturer makes up their own kind of. Here's how to think about this. Look how great it is. Filter manufacturers, like for an engineer like me to really understand how an air filter works, I'm not given that data, right? I, mean, I can get it. I can beg for it. And so yes, this this idea of data transparency and a and a trusting basis for um, comparing data across platforms. It's so golly! It's like the third. It's like uh, the holy grail, I was going to say the third grail. Uh, <laughs> uh,
1: it depends on who you are, that might yeah, be the third rail. Exactly, it's either the other, or. The other thing I would like to enunciate with that is that the reset standard, we are one of the only standards that will actually post all of our standards out there transparently for everyone and for free. So if you If you want to understand how do I deploy according to the reset standard for, you know, uh, my house you can download that for free you can read it um, how what by what is what is the testing criteria for a monitor you can look at that now you might not understand it because some of this is highly technical which is also why we require for every project you have an accredited AP it's not a bonus point it's a requirement because it's technical <laughs> and I think that again you know a lot of the standards that are out there promoting themselves you either have to purchase the standard um and and or they're not transparent about the you know the grading or the certification and i I feel like that's a a step in the wrong direction Mm -hmm, it's like if mm -hmm. i if i'm certified platinum i want to know what made me platinum what was the difference between platinum and silver and if you can't tell me that in a transparent way then what is a building owner am i supposed to a do with that how do i know where i stand and secondly why didn't I get platinum? Like, what can I do better? If, if you don't know the scoring methodology or the algorithm, which is, oh, I just get so tired of hearing the word algorithm. We use this amazing algorithm to tell you, you know, this index number. Well, what's behind that? So Reset, we're very transparent in how we do that, um, with, with everything, with respect to how our data is aggregated, what is required to become a data platform, um, you know, the whole process is, is out there for everybody to actually dig into if they would like to.
0: Yeah, I share your concern about algorithms being the, the secret levers that rule our society, but, so somehow, Giga then, or excuse me, Reset, no, GIGA is a program and GIGA is the corporation, right? Reset is the program, GIGA is the corporation.
1: Right, you have it right. So yes. GIGA is the parent company.
0: Parent um, company.
1: And under that is the Reset standard.
0: Okay, so, so my point was that GIGA then, by having this transparency and it's available for free, they have in, engaged in some sort of business model innovation and or philanthropy. I, I don't know what, but they figured out a way to keep you employed and yet give a lot of really valuable information away.
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, this is such a great sort of topic. We've we've talked internally an awful lot. I don't know, my team might might might, but they might not appreciate me saying this. But I, I've said that we're as close in China, we're as close to a nonprofit as you can get. Mm-hmm. You know, because mm-hmm. we're not in this because we're making hand over fist money with our. We don't even have a registration fee for reset. We have a certification fee and an annual audit fee. We pay our auditors to go in, boots on the ground, and audit you know, a, a building before it gets certified. Right. Um, and we're not getting rich off of that. What we're, what we're interested in, and wh- if you look at the reset standard, we have, you know, our three main intents are to bring health and, you know, betterment to the planet, to actually elevate and, under, and educate people on the importance of data quality, and to actually, you know, arrive at a point where this is a collaborative effort. This isn't, we alone are not going to be able to move the needle on this. this. We have to actually bring a lot of people, the smart people, to the table to actually solve these really complex problems. You know, air oh and gosh. monitoring and all of this is like... I, 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 I have said from the beginning that air is, it's been one of the hardest things I've ever had to do because you can't see it and somehow because it's invisible it's like magic. It's like it's not there and the same thing with you know harmful chemicals and materials. It's such a long span of time before you actually can see any impacts that it is easy, easily to dismiss, easy to dismiss. Absolutely. And that is, I mean, it's just not getting us anywhere. So we need to have an, a huge education piece and an inspirational type of you know, atmosphere that people can come to the table and start looking at complex problems and solving them in really innovative
0: ways absolutely yeah and it it just goes on and on the the hall of mirrors of air quality because you know basically the two categories are chemicals and microbes and now we know that the microbes are eating the chemicals and then microbial metabolites are now new chemicals that interact with the other chemicals and then get eaten in turn it's just
1: yeah uh, we call that
0: a crazy cocktail it's a crazy cocktail yeah so let's let's start to zero in because we need to start wrapping up but so fundamentally, you know, we should have made this clear early in the show, listeners. Thank, thanks for waiting to hear this now. But we, when we talk about air quality data, we're talking about the basics like um, temperature, humidity, CO2, PM2.5, and VOCs, probably those five. Um, so now what we have is, in case you guys haven't paid attention, a global pandemic of air quality. And we have these sensors, but we also have this incredible empirical data stream, like people getting sick and... I don't know that we're doing this, but it certainly seems like, instead of going into the laboratory where you have laboratory settings and you've consciously narrowed your variables such that any conclusion you receive maybe, maybe is useful, but it's also not the crazy cocktail. Is it possible that through uh, the RESET program, we can start to use empirical data to predict like health exposures and COVID health exposure?
1: we can to a degree and i say that with a huge caveat of caution. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so well, that's
0: exciting that you said you can. That, that's uh,
1: what well, you can if you do it intelligently. Caveat. Yeah, you have to do it intelligently, right? So so again, what our team did is again, uh, you know, I feel like we've been banging our, you know, this this air quality drum for a really long time and understanding that you can use the data that you get from continuous monitoring to determine based on the body of research that we have on how viruses survive and how they proliferate and all of the things which uh, is a moving target, right? But if we take that body of research and we put it under the lens of what you can actually learn from continuous monitoring, you can come up with some estimations, right? Mm -hmm, Estimations mm -hmm. of, is my building, and I'm using very blanket statements here, please understand that this is a complex uh, issue, but we focused on the determinants of viral potential on what could be monitored continuously right? So this is different than quanta. This is different than quanta. This is different than calculators that estimate, okay, we have a building that allows for X amount of occupants. If one person comes in and they have the virus, here's the estimation of how many hours you could be in the space before you in turn have potential to, to get sick. Because we don't really know what the, you know, the TD50, we don't really know what that, what that magic number is of viral particles. And it's, there's so much research that talks yes. about the quantity of how much you got, you know, if you inhaled it through your nose versus your mouth. There's is a bevy of you know, information that <laughs> you have yet to digest. Well but but what we did is we looked at what we what we what we knew. We our team looked at hundreds, hundreds of published and pre-published um, the emergency response webinars, the National Academy of Sciences presentations. We took all of that and we digested it the best that we could. The span from you know, viruses like influenza um, to SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2, the evidence that we had, and we crunched those numbers under the lens of a couple of things. What can we do with continuous monitoring? What can we look at as far as the building optimization and the human health optimization. So when you look at those numbers, when you look at, okay, what makes the virus happy under the context of what can be measured in the building? The virus in this context is predominantly happiest in cool and dry temperatures right? The body of evidence shows that they just don't thrive in high, high humidity and in high temperatures. Now, that's a, there's an extreme to that. Yes. And we're not talking about every virus. We're studying specifically what we're talking about SARS-CoV-1-2 and influenza. Um, so most of those viruses under the temperature and humidity, we can actually digest that and translate that when we're getting data from continuous monitors. We can also look at the human immune system. We know that the human immune system does not do well when you have high levels of PM2.5. Mm-hmm. Harvard and T. And Chan humidity, has, yeah. has shown mm-hmm. us that. We don't do well under, you right, dry conditions. Our body is just not at its optimal. So when you actually take that evidence and you weigh it, we extrapolate and interpolate based on what the data showed us to come up with the index. So our number with RESET is using the continuous monitoring for your building, it's overlaying the data that we have from the research and it's giving you a viral potential that you can use in your toolkit to overlay with things like sanitation measurements to wearing masks. Um, You can adjust your air cleaning regimes to actually then look at this overlapping bit of information to help you with your indoor air quality and re-entry plan. So again, in order to do that, you have to have some kind of monitoring in place that gives you numbers that are valid.
0: Mm we have to make some decisions we get going to take some actions so as as much information as we can bring to that situation the better
1: right but you can imagine how different it is for a project that has historical evidence of where their humidity lies in the winter versus the summer or where their their average temperature or mean temperature lies if they have six months worth or a year's worth of data going into this pandemic they're already so far ahead of the curve you know if the recommendation comes out that says ah keep your humidity levels at 50 percent, they know what they need to do to tweak that in the whole package of energy savings and you know uh building uh, protection you don't want it to be too humid or isolating and zoning properly you know for the places that are occupied or not but if you're starting from absolutely zero knowledge um you, you just, you're trying to react in, as you said, you're drinking from the fire hose and, and it's <laughs> gonna be uncomfortable. It's gonna be uncomfortable for you and as a building owner. There's the, there's a liability and a risk factor that really can't be ignored.
0: If I wanna get reset in my commercial building or my home, what do I do? I should okay. that earlier. Really.
1: Well, that's great. Um, so the, the first, I'll, I'll preface that by saying, first of all, you know, there's different statuses now in the reset standard. If going full, you know, full monty into certification is something that scares you or it's just not doable. There are other statuses that are building blocks to get you to that full okay. certification point. So by going to the reset website, you can actually look at these different sort of incremental sort of steps that you can take that will head you in that direction. Um, nice. And if if you you know go to the website, you can find an accredited AP, so an accredited professional that's yeah. in your area. You know if they're in your city, if they're in your country, um, and that is your your first sort of step. You can email them directly, and because they've been hand trained, but there's only there's only three trainers in the world that train all of our accredited Professionals. Awesome. Wow. It is one-on-one training. So you're not getting somebody who studied by a book and took a test and had really no conceptual understanding. These are people who have had to prove that they understand the standard. They're going to help you with deployment and they're going to help you do it in the most efficient way so that you're not putting Got monitors it. in places that you don't need them. So reach out to your APs first. They will help you with understanding the typology. They will help you with monitor procurement and they will help you with deployment that's effective for you for what kind of data and what approach you're actually trying to
0: achieve. Well said. Okay, that's a good place to end it, and uh, I would like to encourage a lot of our listeners, since I know you're serious building nerds, to consider Reset AP certification. That that would be a, a fantastic place to move your career, and I don't think you would find any dead ends thinking about health for the rest of your career.
1: So, and
0: Jeanette Green, thank you so much for being here with us.
1: Thank you, Christoph, and, and you know, the team that's making this happen. I think it's been fabulous to join you. I appreciate having the platform.
0: Truly, truly a delight. And thank you all for listening. And as we go out, we're going to do a first-time you all. This is Miguel Walker playing some sort of guitar music.